ese, ese era un lunes. Ya salíamos de turno de día. It's a Monday, and Juan Carlos and the other mine workers are headed home. Ya salíamos a descanso. They're exhausted. They have just finished a seven-day shift in the coal mines. Entonces, que el último día uno lo coge como para, jocosamente, que o para la casa, que vamos para la casa, que voy a ver a, a mi esposa y lo que tenía novia, decían que iban a ver la novia. Juan Carlos is looking forward to seeing his wife and kids. Other guys are going to see their girlfriends or go out partying with their friends. Sometimes, on these rides home, the driver plays music over the speakers of the bus. Vallenatos. Puro vallenato, pura yuca. Music from Valledupar, Colombia where Juan Carlos lives and where he's headed. The bus is full of mine workers. Juan Carlos is looking out the window. Thinking about the kind of stuff people think about when they're done with a long week of work. That he has to take his kids to the doctor. Que tengo que hacer esta vuelta de mi mamá. That he has to call his mom. Y vea uno, va uno es como analizando qué va a hacer. Mirando, no ni mirando la naturaleza, porque ya uno va mirando y ya sabe por dónde va. Juan Carlos stares out the window. The landscape is a patchwork of palm oil farms mountains and dry land. On the horizon, you can just see the rim of the mines. But Juan Carlos says, most of the time, after a long week, he doesn't really notice what's out there. He's thinking of time and distance, how far he has to go until he's finally home. Suddenly, two trucks pull up behind the bus. One of them, a green Ford Lobo pickup, cuts in front. Several men are riding in the bed of it. They're armed. The bus driver pulls over. Three or four men come onto the bus. The workers watch them, saying nothing. The men tell the mine workers that they know one of them is carrying a pistol. Nobody responds. So they go around and tell the men who have cell phones to hand them over. And then they tell the driver to follow the first pickup truck, while a second one tells them. Y bueno, nos colocaron aquí. They lead the bus into a side road and order all the mine workers off, hands up. Then they confiscate the workers' IDs, put them in a line, and tell them to get on their knees. A man in one of the pickups is giving orders. 
One of the men grabs Valmore Locarno, the president of the Mine Workers Union. Y bueno, nos colocaron aquí. Y fue cuando llegando aquí, el, el compañero Valmore. They tell Valmore to hand over the pistol he carries for self-defense. And he does. Then, they shoot him in the back of the head. After Valmore's body falls to the ground, he's shot three more times. Y el compañero que va ahí, que va tirado ahí, ya muerto. Then the armed men grab another guy. They tie him up and get ready to leave. But then a man in the pickup indicates that that's the wrong guy. And they go back and find Victor Orcasita, the vice president of the union. And they pull him onto one of the trucks. Y ellos lo que argumentaban era decir que eso le pasaba a la gente que se metía en cosas que no tenía que meterse. Juan Carlos says that at this point, he and the rest of the workers are terrified that the men are going to come back. So they just get back on the bus and leave as fast as they can. Nos ganó el pánico y nos ganó el miedo. They're so panicked, they drive away without bringing Valmore's body with them, which Juan Carlos still regrets. Y bueno, y aquí estamos haciendo el relato nuevamente de que vuelvo y repito 19 años después y y no hemos sabido el porqué de los asesinatos de nuestros compañeros. Nearly 20 years after this incident, Juan Carlos's question is still the same. Why? Pero tenemos fe que algún día tarde o temprano pues se va a saber la verdad que lo que al fin y al cabo pues queremos todo. He believes one day he'll know the truth of what happened. Que es el ruido de la naturaleza, no escucha. He stops and just stands for a moment in this spot where his friend was killed. You hear that? He says. That's the sound of nature. Entonces nos vamos. Seguimos. I'm Ramon Campos, and this is The Crisis. Chapter 1, The Union. Compañero, come on. Nosotros vamos a hacerlo a la base Tomajones. 
Juan Carlos leads us through the desolate land around the mine. He's got on a heavy black bulletproof vest, a trucker hat, and sunglasses, so no one will recognize him. He's driving in a separate car ahead of us with his bodyguard. And uh, he said that he, he cannot get out of his car because he doesn't want to be seen by the company security and that we should get out of the car and do whatever we need to do in a minute and get back in the car and continue because the company security will be, I guess, all over us in a, in a minute if they see us with cameras or microphones. We've been driving towards coal mines owned by an American company called Drummond, which are in the heart of the province of Cesar in Colombia's mining belt. The land is arid and covered with fine red dirt. Agnes says that's because the soil breaks down and water passes through it, freeing the iron inside. And when oxygen touches it, it turns it red. So like the same way that our blood is blue, but then is oxidized and turns red? Yeah, kind of like exactly. That? So wow, oldest, science. Yeah, science. The oldest soil is, the redder it is, and the tropics have the oldest soil. There are a few beat-up-looking houses freckled across the landscape. But the main attraction, the thing we've come to see, is sort of hidden in plain sight. Drummond's coal mine is barely visible from the road. And when we are able to see it, it just looks like a sort of big black hill in the middle of the plains. Drummond has been operating in Colombia for over 30 years. Gary Drummond, the president of the coal company from Alabama, started checking out land here in the 80s, looking to expand business outside the United States. The area has huge deposits of coal that were largely untapped, and in 1985, the company signed a new lease for a coal mine here. And the Colombian government welcomed Drummond. Over the past two years, we have come to realize the many advantages offered by our new corporate citizenship. In Colombia, the government gave multinational corporations big tax breaks. The attitude of the Colombian government and its ministers has given us encouragement and confidence in all aspects of the project. And made it clear that Colombia was a country where those companies could make a lot of money. The country has long traditions of democratic institutions and a progressive society. I have always felt that there is a strong sense of fairness and respect for the rule of law. But Gary Drummond was moving his family coal business right into the middle of a war. So it's very hard to describe in simple podcast language the civil war that's been happening in my country for the past 60 years. And it is a civil war, according to the definition of the term, even though there are some Colombians who resist that label. But anyway, I'm going to try to describe it in simple terms. For most of its history, the Colombian government's policies have largely benefited rich landowners and contributed to widespread inequality. So starting in the 1960s, several leftist guerrilla groups decide they're sick of it. They take up arms against the government, demanding change. 
It's been over half a century since a Marxist guerrilla group, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, or FARC, took up arms in a bitter war against the Colombian state. The two main guerrilla groups that operated in the area where this story takes place are the FARC and the ELN. They have different demands and strategies, but for simplicity, we'll refer to them as the guerrillas. In the 80s, the guerrillas set up camp in the mountains of Cesar, the same region where the Drummond mine is located. And from there, they start to launch attacks on police and army outposts. In South America, the hunt is on after two deadly attacks by leftist guerrillas in Colombia. On Friday, gunmen ambushed a convoy of judicial officials, soldiers, and police, killing 11. On Saturday, in another ambush, gunmen killed 17 policemen. In Cesar, the guerrillas fight to collectivize farms that belong to the landowning elite. They kidnap and extort wealthy ranchers. They establish an alternative tax system for businesses in the areas where they operate and enforce it. They also push to nationalize big businesses that extract natural resources like coal and oil. And they attack the companies that are exploiting those resources. They blow up oil pipelines, burn cars and trucks transporting cargo, and kidnap foreign executives. All in the name of fighting U.S. imperialism and Colombia's chronic inequality. While guerrilla warfare batters the Colombian countryside, political violence and organized crime menace the cities. And the Colombian political elite respond. They create and fund a network of paramilitary groups designed to take down the guerrillas by any and all means necessary. Armed in the 1990s to fight against left-wing guerrillas, they were accused of massacring thousands of innocent civilians. These paramilitary groups start a campaign of terror, unleashing violence on anybody that resembles their profile of a guerrilla sympathizer. Teachers, activists, students, and union members. The paramilitaries don't always ride around in uniforms, like a proper military unit. They wage their own form of war, snatching people away in the middle of the night and torturing and executing them. They carry out massacres. The paramilitaries have no legal mandate to be fighting a war, but they often count on support from the government. Everything they do is just as illegal as what the guerrillas are doing. Some of the people they target are related to the conflict, but many others are not. More than 220,000 people have been killed in the conflict and more than 6 million forced to leave their homes. El Cesar y Antioquia, departamentos más golpeados por la violencia este año. Tens of thousands are assassinated or disappeared forever. Entire communities are driven from their land. Drummond opens its first coal mine in Colombia in 1995, 30 years into this civil war.
Bueno, mi nombre es Juan Carlos Rojas. Juan Carlos gets a job there as a welder. Son siete días, siete días de noche, siete días de día por, por tres de descanso, siete días. The mine employees generally work six or seven days straight, and they're given a few days off. Es duro, es duro. But the long, grueling hours bring the guys together. They're spending a full week at the mine with each other. They eat together, sleep together, play soccer together. Pues somos una familia. Los trabajadores en sí somos una familia. Juan Carlos, like lots of Drummond's workers, joins the local branch of the union, Sintrami Energética. Miners, welders, electricians, drivers, the union represents hundreds of men. And every two years, Drummond is required to negotiate with the union, so the union leadership is able to make demands, like asking for better pay or safer working conditions. At the beginning of 2000, Drummond and the union are in negotiations. En ese momento, lo más preocupante, lo más neurálgico era la alimentación. One of their main points of tension, Juan Carlos says, is the quality of the food in the cafeteria at the mine. El arroz venía de pronto sucio, con piedra, no lo lavaban. Eh, boludo, con piedra, quiere decir que no lo lavaban. Juan Carlos says the food was disgusting. He says sometimes there were rocks in the rice. And other times, the meat they were served was rotten. Entonces la sopa también llegaba y no le echaban de pronto los nutrientes que eran, sino que hacían un agua de sal. He remembers they were given a soup he says was just salty water. We reached out to Drummond to respond to these allegations. They refute the claims about the food and, in an email, they say they've always respected the rights and agreements they have with their unions. And bad food might not seem like such a big deal, but this is breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day. And Juan Carlos says there's another issue with the cafeteria that had nothing to do with the food. Workers start to notice that some of the cafeteria staff are carrying weapons. Pero era una, una cuestión muy invivible porque... Yo nunca había visto también de que, que uno que le puedan servir un plato de, de comida tenía que ir a, a servir una persona armada, una pistola. Drummond says that these allegations are false, that Drummond in Colombia has never allowed staff to carry weapons inside their premises. But multiple employees will later testify that they saw armed men in the cafeteria. And the president of Drummond in Colombia at the time Augusto Jiménez will also testify that he received complaints about the food services staff carrying weapons. He passed the complaint onto human resources and says he never heard anything about it again. This is the middle of a civil war, so it's not uncommon for big companies to hire private security. So at first, the workers wonder if these men have been hired as security by the food services company or by Drummond. But cuando hay una seguridad privada, pues te uniforman y te dicen seguridad privada y uno entiende que debe ser así. Juan Carlos asks himself, what kind of private security doesn't wear uniforms? Why do they need weapons to run a cafeteria? Ahí sí empezó la la sospecha y a mirar que verdaderamente no era lo que nosotros que no eran lo que nosotros esperábamos. Valmore Locarno and Victor Orcasita 
are the president and vice president of their local branch of the union. Valmore and Victor are both meeting with the executives of Drummond, laying out their demands. They want the company to pay for their children's education. They want assurances of safer working conditions. And they want better food. They organize rallies. And sometimes, for a little bit, the food gets better. But then, after a few months, Juan Carlos says it's bad again. Él decía que la gente se quejaba de la comida. Yo les veía yo hablar de la cuestión de la comida. Victor tells his wife, Elisa Almarales, about the complaints too. Elisa is in her 50s now. She and Victor started dating when they were teenagers. Bueno, Victor, yo lo conocí desde que estaba en el bachillerato. He'd meet her at the bus stop after school, and they'd hang out until it was time for her to be home. Y ahí nos conocimos, y nos enamoramos de una. Elisa says Victor was very good-looking, with dark skin and a neatly trimmed mustache. Muy bien parecido, entre otras cosas. He was charismatic. He had this way with people. Él era un hombre muy dicharachero. A Victor Hugo, al que no le caía bien, era porque tenía que ser muy muérgano. Everyone who met him loved him. Ese hombre a todo el mundo le servía, a todo el mundo le caía bien, con todo el mundo era una sonrisa. O sea, no era un hombre que caía mal a nadie. He used to wear these all-white outfits. From his shirt to his shoes, all white. After graduating from high school, Elisa went off to college. And Victor stayed in Valledupar and got a job at a nearby mine. In ese lapso de tiempo, eso sí que él nunca le gustó el estudio. Él no, el cine se puso a hacer un curso en el SENA de la cuestión de operador, de maquinaria, y se, él, él trabajó un tiempo en el Cerrejón. Elisa dropped out of school after a couple of years because it got too expensive, and she returned home to Valledupar, and Victor and Elisa got back together. By this point, Victor already has a child with another woman. His daughter's name is Vanessa. Bueno, mi nombre es Vanessa Caterina Orcasita Pisciotti. Tengo 36 años. Vanessa kind of looks like her dad. She's got full cheeks and deep brown eyes. She says when she was a kid, she and her father were inseparable. She remembers tagging along with her dad over to the houses of guys who wanted jobs at the mine. Él le colaboraba, él le tomaba foto a cada parte de pronto del que tenía la máquina, él le iba explicando. Victor worked for Drummond as an electrician on the mine's heavy machinery. And he'd show up with all these pictures of machines at the mine. He'd describe what each machine did and how to use it. Le explicaba, mira, esto es para esto, esto, esto no sé qué. When Victor and Vanessa would walk around Valledupar, people would stop and talk to him. Everyone seemed to know him. By the time Elisa and Victor moved in together, Elisa says she felt like Vanessa was her daughter, even if they weren't related by blood. Sometimes, Victor and Vanessa would go watch Elisa play baseball. Her office had a team. 
or Elisa and Victor would go out dancing. They were happy. Sí, y fue más feliz. A mí nunca se me olvida cuando cuando se enteró que el que lo habían elegido como vicepresidente del sindicato. Soon after the union was founded, Victor was chosen as the vice president. Tú sabes lo lindo que te llame tu amigo, el pre, que es el presidente del sindicato y te pida opiniones, o sea, te, 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 te pida sugerencias. Vanessa says he talked about how beautiful it was to be relied on by your friends, that the president of the union asked him for advice. Me dices, eso es muy bonito, me decía, eso es muy bonito. But Victor's wife, Elisa, wasn't so sure. For one, he was already away for a week at a time because of the way the mine shifts were scheduled. And this was just going to add more work. But more importantly... Y como ya estaba la cuestión de la, los paramilitares que se metían a las casas, que tumbaban las puertas, entonces ya uno empieza, ya, ya en esa época existía el temor, ¿no? At this point in time, union leaders were being gunned down by right-wing paramilitary groups all over Colombia. Union members were often accused of working for the guerrillas. In the context of the Colombian Civil War, labor organizing equal leftist politics. And leftist politics became synonymous with the cause of the guerrillas. And that could get you killed. I said, Victor, look how the things are here. And now to people, Elisa tells Victor to be careful. But he says it's not a big deal, that nothing's going to happen, that she's overreacting. Elisa attends a few union meetings and starts to get worried. She sees that her husband and Balmore are fighting a lot with Drummond's management. In the year 2000, several things happened that raised tensions at the mine. First, Drummond's railway is being bombed over and over, and they can't seem to stop it. Second, four mine workers are killed in a landslide at the mine. So Victor and Balmore start asking for changes in workplace safety. And that same year, the guerrillas kidnap some of Drummond's workers and hold them for ransom. Eventually, the men are released. But around this same time, hundreds of pamphlets start appearing around the mine, accusing the union members of working for the guerrillas. The pamphlets say, quote, The multinational Drummond is a source of income and development in our municipality. And as a result, it has become another part of our patrimony. It goes on to draw connections between the timing of the stalled negotiations between the Union and Drummond and the bombing of the railway. It then reads, The community that rules in this municipality calls on the labor union leaders of the multinational Drummond to realize that these types of actions will lead to an intensification of the violence that our country currently is experiencing. It ends in bold. Down with the guerrilla labor unionism up with the labor unionism that interacts in a way that benefits the community.
For the Union, this was dangerous. In Colombia, to be connected to the guerrillas is to be a target. So the Union starts talking with executives at the company about the safety of its leadership. Their supervisors at the mine, who are mostly American guys, all live in company housing, so they don't have to drive to a nearby town to rent a room and risk running into the paramilitaries. They ask Drummond to provide housing on the mine's property for them too. One night, Victor returns home from work and hands his wife Elisa a piece of paper. It's a will, explaining what she should do if he were to be killed. So Elisa asks Victor, why did you write this? Why are you giving this to me? Y me dijo, no, porque Elisa nos pasó, hace dos días nos pasó, estábamos en el sindicato, y Jaime Blanco, y de quién es Jaime Blanco, yo no conozco. Elisa says, Victor told her that he had run into Jaime Blanco, the man who ran the food services at the mine, and that Jaime had caught wind of the fact that Victor and Valmore were trying to get his contract revoked. Antes que le quitaran el contrato, él prefería matar a dos o tres sindicalistas. And according to Elisa, he had said he'd rather kill two or three union members than have his contract taken away. More after the break. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. On New Year's Eve, December 31st, 2000, Victor's daughter, Vanessa, remembers sitting in the park across the street from her house with her dad. At one point, he turned to her and said, Solo recuerda que este año que viene va a ser un año de bendiciones that this year was going to bring only good things. He had been saving money and was planning to buy a house. Elisa says that same New Year's Eve, Valmore came by to talk with Victor. She says they stayed up all night talking. El temor que ellos tenían, porque ambos estaban, ambos estaban atemorizados, ambos. Even though he tried not to let on, Elisa could tell that Victor was terrified. A month later, men who identify themselves as members of the paramilitaries show up in the middle of the night at the home of a Drummond worker named Candido Mendes. According to his daughter, Candido had seen paramilitary members in the cafeteria and protested their presence. She says that night, they drag her dad out of the house and shoot him. Uh, 
The union met with the Departamento Administrativo de Seguridad, DAS, Colombia's intelligence agency, to do a security study, an assessment of whether or not the union leaders were in danger. Augusto Jimenez, the president of Drummond in Colombia, went with them, because if the men were in danger, the government was supposed to provide them with security, like bodyguards and armored cars. Y el DAS consideró que no, que no, no había riesgo, que ellos estaban, no tenían peligro de ninguna clase. Así que no había que necesidad de ponerle ni, ni, ni escolta, ni, ni carro blindado, ni nada. The DAS came back to them and said there was only a medium to low risk that the union members might be attacked. So the Colombian government didn't provide any security to Victor and Valmore. And Drummond never provided them housing at the mine site. On March 5th, 2001, Victor got ready to leave for work. El día que se fue a trabajar, ese día llegamos del colegio, él estaba en la casa. Vanessa was sitting on the balcony, reading a magazine. Me, me regañó. And her dad saw her from below and yelled up. Stop reading your magazines and do your homework. And she's like, Dad, I'm already finished. So he tells her to go to bed. Before she goes to sleep, Victor gives her bendiciones, a blessing. He did this anytime he was home, once in the morning and once at night. Y me fui a acostar. The next week, Elisa waited for her husband to come home. He usually returned in the afternoon. But as it got late, she fell asleep. And then she got a call. It was Victor's sister. She said that one of Drummond's buses had been stopped by armed men and the mine workers had been forced off the bus. That they had killed Valmore right there on the side of the road and pulled Victor onto a truck. Later that evening, Elisa gets another phone call, this time from a union member named Gustavo Soler. Gustavo tells Elisa that they had found Victor. Where, she asks. In the morgue, in Bosconia, Victor's body was found by the side of the road. Elisa says that when she goes to identify Victor at the morgue, what she notices the most is the expression on his face. He looks helpless. O sea, él quedó con los ojos abiertos. Y la mirada que él tenía era como una cara como cuando de impotencia ya, cuando... 
they had tortured him. Fue un hombre que yo quise mucho. Ningún ser humano merece morir así, y él menos. Nobody deserves to die like that, Elisa says. Él menos. Especially him. El menos. The day after the killings, the president of Drummond in Colombia, Augusto Jiménez, speaks to the press from Cartagena. He says that Drummond believes in Colombia and hopes to continue working and bringing economic and social development to the country. And, he says, he is deeply appalled by what had happened to the union leaders. After the murders, 1,200 workers go on strike for several days. That same week, Valmore's family holds his funeral. Janet Baloku is the wife of Valmore, the president of the union. Janet says his funeral was packed. Everybody knew Valmore, and hundreds came to pay respects. Janet says the workers at Drummond looked up to her husband. He was the kind of leader who said what needed to be said. He didn't bullshit. Even when things were difficult or uncomfortable. That was just the way he was. Just like Elisa, Janet had been worried for months. Empezaron a circular unos panfletos donde los amenazaban a toda la directiva sindical. She had seen the pamphlets that warned the union leaders to leave town or face the consequences. And she had heard the death threats her husband got over the phone. She and Valmore even talked about moving. Three weeks after Valmore's murder, Janet is at work when she gets a call. From someone who identifies themselves as part of the paramilitaries. The voice on the other end of the line tells her to stop what she's doing, to stop asking questions. They know who she is. They know where she is. They know where her son and her niece go to school. And they give her one month to leave town. And then they hang up. A week later, Janet's housekeeper tells her that she's got a message. It's the same person who called last week. They heard that she had gone to the DAS, the intelligence agency, for help, asking them to investigate suspicious calls. 
Janet panics. Yo abandoné la ciudad, me tocó dejar todo tirado, mi trabajo, mi casa. The next day, she leaves everything behind, her friends, her house, her city, and flees. Next time on The Crisis. What I do remember very clearly and also viscerally, emotionally, is that everybody in that room was terrified. The story of these murders travels to the U.S. If you could kill someone like Balmari Locarno in broad daylight and get away with it, then these other guys who were much less prominent and visible certainly saw their names on a tombstone too. Crisis is a production of Vice News. It's hosted by me, Sarah Quevedo, Ramon Campos, and Agnes Walton. It's produced by me and Ashley Cleek, who is our senior producer. Reporting by Ramon Campos, Agnes Walton, me, and Ashley Cleek. Adriana Tapia is also our producer. Adriana Rodriguez is our associate producer. And thanks to Jesse Alejandro Cotro for additional production support. Sound design by Ben Cruz Kaya. Original scoring also by Ben Kruskaya, with additional music from Dominica Records in Bogota, Colombia. Translation and editorial consulting by Diego Salazar. Annie Aviles is our executive producer. Kate Osborne is the VP of Vice Audio. Janet Lee is our senior production manager. Production coordination from Stephanie Brown. Special thanks to Maximo Anderson and Jeff Pierre for fact-checking.